<laughs> Shall we begin? Welcome to the Happy Monster Cast. I'm your host, Scott Marchand Davis of Happy Monster Press. Let's begin now. This week on the Happy Monster Cast, we leave the world of rifts and enter the world of Legion of Liberty, superheroes of 1776. The heroes of SET Alpha 1-2 have finished their mission to save the world, and that means some changes in the podcast. Starting next episode, we'll be transitioning to a campaign of Happy Monster Press's own Legion of Liberty, Superheroes of 1776. In addition to this transition, we're also changing platforms. The Roll20 gang is now the Foundry gang, using the Foundry virtual tabletop. So far, the players love the interface and I love the ease of use, and the one-time cost versus subscription. Legion of Liberty is an alternate history in which some humans and a few animals in the Western Hemisphere are born with superpowers. As a result, the exploitation of the Americas by European powers included conscription of anyone found with these powers into special units in the French, British, Portuguese, and Spanish armies, fighting wars both in Europe and abroad. This conscription, along with other actions by the British Crown and Parliament, such as tea taxes and the Stamp Act, is one of the sparks that ignites a spirit of revolution in Britain's North American colonies leading to the Revolutionary War. Each player has created a character who will play a part in the soon-to-begin American Revolution. Frankie is the team leader, Elijah Allen, a Virginian veteran of the French and Indian Wars with a taste for gospel and a silver tongue, but no apparent superpowers of his own. Bob plays Victoria Spellman, a tough, capable, and not-at-all-ladylike Bostonian with the ability to create and throw vials of liquid explosives and an affinity for machinery of all sorts. Brendan is Artemis Crow, a shadowy figure who has been on the run from British conscription in Georgia for several years, and uses his powers of invisibility and tracking in combination with lethal psionic bolts and spinning daggers to take down enemies before they know he's there. Jung Soo plays Clara Washington a free black woman who escaped slavery in Virginia using her ability to boost her own physical skills and strength, and now fights for freedom with her trademark wooden shield. And Frank plays Petnoet, a Massachusetts Wampanoag fighter who can transform into a monstrous creature formed of swamp muck and who occasionally explodes, wreaking havoc all around. And now, courtesy of Manuel Sams and Veiled Fury Entertainment, here's an interview conducted during the Legion of Liberty Kickstarter last year in which I talk superpowers, history, and role-playing. Enjoy! Greetings, Patriot. General Washington really appreciates you signing up, and I know you are eager to find out how you and the special powers you can wield can influence the war. So, let's find out more. Hello and welcome to Veld Fury Entertainment. I am once again for the second time joined by Scott Marchant Davis of Happy Monster Press. And today we are going to talk about his upcoming product, which is now on Kickstarter, Legions of Liberty Superheroes of 7076. Hello, Scott, and thank you so much for joining me again. Glad, glad, glad to have you back. Very happy to be back. 
So for everyone who missed the first time you were on the show, uh, just give us a quick rundown uh, of who are you, what do you do when you don't design role-playing games, and um, yeah, how. And then we're just going to st dive straight in how the Legions of Liberty came to be. So uh, I've been gaming since uh, I was about, uh, let's see, I think 10 was my first D&D Redbox experience and uh, migrated through multiple systems since then before really landing on Savage Worlds as a system that I love. It's easy for the GM to run. It's not hard to teach for the players. And I think it's fantastic. A couple of years ago, decided to take some of the things that I'd been developing around the table and put them out as licensed products for Savage Worlds. The first one of those, which we talked about earlier, was Children of the Apocalypse which is a post-post-apocalyptic fantasy set in a twisted future New England where uh, gods are running around, magic works, uh, general chaos ensues. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great TLDR. Gen general chaos. <laughs> I wonder if he's going to be an NPC in, in uh, Legions of Liberty. We do have a uh, we do have some tuckerizations where people can uh, name the characters, and I think if someone really wanted a general chaos, I'd probably include it. <laughs> oh my god, I might have just given somebody a horrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, the Legions of Liberty—it's going to be the Revolutionary War, but with a slight twist. So. I guess the usual question question I ask at this point is what sparked that idea, but I can I can pretty much see where the idea come from because superheroes are awesome and that is one of the that is the most <laughs> important time in in US American history. So mashing those together that's really kind of a no-brainer. But what made you actually want to sit down and write it as a setting and not just not just run it for your group at home? Oddly enough, there was a bit of local history involved. Uh, so I live in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, which is mostly known for the witch trials, which also provokes a quite uh, interesting Halloween season for us around here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the less known things about Salem is that the Revolutionary War almost started here. Oh, okay. A couple of months a couple of months before the official kickoff at the battles of Lexington and Concord, there was an expedition by uh, British regulars coming up from Boston, attempting to confiscate cannon from the Salem militia. Le these were led by a gentleman named Colonel Leslie. Uh, and there was a almost absurd incident in which he insisted on crossing a drawbridge into North Salem and the colonial militia refused to have him cross over had that gone differently, uh, hostilities could very easily have ensued. One person was actually wounded in the altercation. But eventually, the local parish priest negotiated a compromise where Leslie was allowed to march across the bridge 40 rods into North Salem and then had to turn around and go back to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> this is known locally as Leslie's Retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it really was almost the start of the Revolutionary War. And it's, it's Nobody knows about it unless they're local. Wow. So I thought that would be a fun way to kick off the Revolutionary War was with that battle going differently. Mm -hmm. This time, the colonists put up more of a fight. Leslie is uh, more intransigent. And that's the first battle of the revolution. 
Wow. So uh, this is going to be a very interesting talk we're going to have because I know very little about the American Revolution besides what's been portrayed in uh, popular media. So of, of course, I've seen The Patriot. And uh, since I'm a subscriber to the History Buffs uh, YouTube channel, big shout out. Those guys are amazing. Oh, he is amazing. It's a one man show. So, <laughs> so I know that The Patriot is actually very far away from portraying the actual events <laughs> of the American Revolution. So I, basically, I know that I don't really know much about it. So that's that's going to be interesting. So that already brings me to my to my first question here. So how much of the Legions of Liberty is going to be an an actual depiction of historic events, and how much of it is going to be a liberal reinterpretation to get your campaign to where you want it to be? There's actually some of both. So there are a couple of decisions that we made up front when designing the setting. One was we wanted to stay fairly close to history up to the point of the revolution. So there's not a lot of difference between the way history played out in the world, despite there being superheroes running around, up until the point of the revolution. But we also wanted the players' actions to really matter during the actual campaign. So there are places where history can diverge based on whether the players win or lose a particular battle. That will then lead them down a different path that could potentially result in things like the Americans owning Canada at the end of the war. <laughs> oh, I know some Canadians who are not going to be happy with that aspect of the campaign. <laughs> Hi, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, um, well, since uh, now it's already been kind of brought up, it's, uh, well, th the players are all going to be superheroes, well, superpowered individuals. I mean, hero is an, is an ambivalent term, depending on True. which True. side of which side you're, you're standing on. So uh, I guess we should probably call them uh, superpowered people. So the, yeah. point, the, the, the interesting point is only people born in the Americas have a chance to become a superpowered person. So that means every superpowered person on the side of the British is also going to be someone who was actually born in the Americas. So that's right. There could be a lot of, um, well, tension, social conflicts, because people are basically, well, as it probably happened in, in the Revolutionary War, people are going to go against, to go to war against people who used to be their neighbors, maybe even part of their families, um, if, if I'm not mistaking that. That absolutely did happen. Uh, as a case in point, uh, ben, one of Benjamin Franklin's sons remained on the Loyalist side. And uh, uh, I don't know if he actually fought for the British or not, but he certainly remained on that side and ended up migrating to England after the war. So that was very, very common. The So you do have that dynamic, and depending on how much the players want to, and the GM want to emphasize role play versus uh, you know straight up superhero brawling, that you add, there's a lot of potential for that those kinds of conflicts to play out. Potentially, you could even have say a sibling who was in in the uh, British Greycoats, which are their the shorthand for the Royal Superhuman Regiment, hmm. uh, and is, you might end up fighting that person who is a close relation. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that's always an interesting, uh, an interesting point for for most more social encounters. Um, I, I can see that being used by by GMs j just for for that exact reason. If you want to give your campaign that that more personal touch, then it's going to be like, yeah, you're going to go on a night raid mission and just burn the whole place down. And when they are there, they'll just be like, Frank, what are you exactly. doing here? What what what, what what's that uniform on you? 
And yeah, that's going to be very interesting at the table. Um, so, well, talking about the um, what, the making of, of of the outfits of both sides. So, um, so the the role of women in the Revolutionary War are well, that that part is well documented. Also, the part where lots of women said, "Screw you, we're going to fight anyways and do our own thing." <laughs> exactly. So, uh, how is that going to work in uh, Legions of Liberty? Well, to start, half of the the gray coats and half of the Legion of Liberty the unit that eventually is on the colonial side, in fact, women, because half of the superhumans born are women. So in that sense, there's a certain amount of uh, gender neutrality when it comes to those units. They have female officers, they have female non-commissioned officers, women are right in the front lines. Hmm. With that said, it's a very tiny population. And I took some inspiration here from uh, something I'm going to plug, which is Naomi Novik's Temeraire series. Uh, this is a, a, also a genre mashup. It's the Napoleonic War, but with dragons. <laughs> <laughs> and certain breeds of dragons will only accept female captains. The captain being some someone that has kind of bonded with the dragon, and they have a, uh, a the term in English is impressing, where you, know, you if you have a hatched bird, they kind of fixate on whoever they see first as their mother. Dragons work a little bit the same way. So since these very powerful dragons will only accept female captains, they have to have some female officers in the aerial corps. But that hasn't changed the overall social structure that much. So historically, it's not that different. With that said, there's nothing in the system that prescribes you going a different direction with it. So a player or a GM could absolutely play a more socially liberal version of the than was actually present in history, or you could stick closer to the historical background, depending on how you want that to play out at the table. Mm. And of course, since we are already changing history in that way that there are superpowered humans, and well, of course, half of them born are going to be women. That is that is going going to change things in the world if it had played out that way. So, uh, yep. The, the the whole idea for, for people to um, treat women equally as men w w would be introduced a lot sooner uh, by exactly. force, by the sheer necessity of, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to deny 50% of our main fighting force here. Exactly. And in fact, uh, several of the key NPCs, particularly on the British side, are women. So there will definitely be women facing the players across the table when it comes to some of these super battles. Hmm. So, uh, well, another uh, big uh, influence in, in, in the fighting and in making up the, the fighting force are uh, Native Americans. Um, anything special on, on that regard? So a, a couple of interesting things there. Obviously, Native Americans would have had superhumans all along. But part of the, the way the setting is created is that the superhumans are not extremely powerful. You're, it's not like a single superhuman is going to be able to take on an entire company of British infantry and come out in one piece. So that's one of the reasons why history hasn't changed all that much. You don't have a Superman or a Captain Marvel level superhero running around who could just decimate the entire British army. They're more lower-powered superheroes who can influence a, a battle, but they're not going to dominate it. Yeah. So for that reason, that's why the, the standard history of the conquest of the Americas by the European colonists played out more or less the same. It's also important to remember that in many cases, 
some of those Native American tribes sided with the conquerors. Uh, Cortez would never have been able to conquer the Aztecs had not some of the Aztec client states sided with him because they were sick of the Aztec emperor running their business. So there's definitely, and that played out in American history as well, where you had Native American tribes on both sides of the revolution. The majority sided with the British, and there are some savage tales in the setting that actually take that into account, where you're either doing things like trying to sabotage the flow of arms to those tribes who are fighting against the, the revolutionary colonists, or you're trying to use diplomacy to persuade some of those tribes to side with the colonists and against the British and therefore some of their fellow Native Americans. Hmm. Cool. Right, so uh, th there are there is one thing that is also in in the jumpstart which is mentioned, which uh, I noticed because I watched Sleepy Hollow, <laughs> <laughs> or, or I've watched Sleepy Hollow until they removed the female lead character, and the whole series went really weird. And uh, that was the uh, the famous expression, uh, "The British are coming," which. It wouldn't have been, and and I actually nope. I double checked that actually on Wikipedia, and it says yeah that's a common mis mis uh, interpret misrepresentation of what he actually said, because back then many people were still considering themselves British, but yep. maybe but not not royal uh, royal royally loyalists, some something like that. You know, loyalist like, usual term, yeah, yeah. So yes, we we that was a tough editorial decision because it is so <laughs> iconic. Uh, but it really wasn't what he said. He said the regulars are coming uh, because it was the regular British Army versus the militia. And that's really how the early conflicts in Massachusetts played out. You had the the regular army, mostly from Britain, although they had some colonists in those units, and then you had the militia, which was entirely composed of the local colonists, uh, less organized, more democratic. They had some cases where they were electing officers similar to what happened later in the Civil War, which, you know, compared to buying your commission, which was the standard practice in the Royal Army at the time, not sure which of those was the better approach. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the more popular guy who should be in charge or the richer guy who should be in charge? Eh, kind of a wash there, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we have, we absolutely made made the decision to stick with that iconic phrase, the British are coming. but. In the course of the plot point campaign, we I tried to kind of shift the language a little bit, where it started out as being more about the regulars, and then eventually became more about the patriots and loyalists, and then the mm -hmm. colonists and the British. It's a tough thing to convey, though, because it really is very iconic in the U.S. that that the British are coming is what Revere was yelling on his ride, or in our case, because he is a super speedster on his run to uh, Salem to warn the militia. Yeah. Um, which actually touches on the introduction to your adventure in the Jumpstart. So you guys should actually absolutely check out check out the ju the Jumpstart. Except if you're watching this when the campaign has already concluded and you can buy the whole book. So just do that then. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, yeah, superpowered humans, which means. Uh, Arcane background superpowers and going. I'm just basing this on on what I've read in the Jumpstart. So um, in the Jumpstart, you are basing it on the old Savage Worlds deluxe version of the arcane background superpowers. Correct. So that was a a, a deliberate decision then. Yes, when uh, the Savage Worlds Adventure Edition came out and we came out, and we saw the arcane background gifted. We really had to think about. Do we want to migrate over to that or stick with what we have? And 
the power level was the deciding factor there. Mm-hmm. In order to get a new power as a superhuman, you have to buy the new power edge and you have to buy the skills in our setting versus simply buying the new power and already having the skill, which is how the arcane background gifted works. So we actually wanted to make the power curve flatter, make it harder for superheroes to become more powerful with experience. because We thought that fit the setting better. So this way, it's more expensive in terms of spending advances to build up a power or to gain new ones versus simply taking a new power edge and suddenly you might have a D10 and two entirely new powers. So they'd need, okay, but they still would get two new powers with the edge. They just then have to use, yes. buy two more, uh, two more sets of, of skill. Right. So they start out unskilled with those new powers, which could be interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's even more so because we also use the no PowerPoint setting rule. So whatever PowerPoint costs those powers have, that's becomes a penalty on that skill roll as well. So you might be rolling a D4 minus six for a particularly good power until you get some skill in it. Uh, that's going to be very interesting, but yeah, still still better than uh, somebody who, who doesn't have access uh, to those powers. Well, there there might be a chance for him to uh, to pull it off. And also with Arkham, with the no PowerPoints option, you can just concentrate. Let me see if I can recite the rule co- correctly. You can concentrate for a round to negate, I think, up to two points of penalties. So correct. Still, still in the, in the realm of possibility, even if it's a very high PowerPoint cost of power. And uh, you modified character creation a bit to, uh, I guess, give them a bit of a of a head start and not have them spend all their precious uh, skill points, of which there are fewer anyway, since it's um, now uh, the adventure edition uh, on on the the skills they need to actually be a super powered being. Correct. We we wanted I wanted to give the superhumans a bit of a leg up, so they have some extra points for attributes in case what you're really going for is someone with super strength, for example. Mm-hmm. You can you have more attribute points to jack that strength up to a D10 or a D12, and also extra skill points that are specifically intended only for the superpower skills. So if you focus, if you just take one power and you want to stick with that one power, you can start with a D12 in it essentially for free. And I did have one character in the playtest campaign who did precisely that. Uh, and she started out with shape change. Mm-hmm. So uh, that made for some really interesting shape changes in the campaign, uh, one of which we're going to depict with our trademark uh, Sharpie and art. <laughs> and uh, that is uh, when she changed into the form of a giant crab and attacked a British vessel during a naval action. So basically, she kind of crawled up over the side of the thing, uh, causing quite a morale penalty for that particular mass battle. I can imagine that. Yep, that's uh, that's going to be marked on some maps. Yeah, there are actually monsters here. Just, just avoid area at all costs. Yep. Unless but if you, you take the new, if you take new power, then you can spread those points around a bit more. You have more flexibility. We also added some new edges that help offset some of these penalties. For example, you can have power focus, which gives you a bonus on your power roll that helps offset the cost of the no PowerPoint uh, rule penalties. Yep, and besides that, there is also something you call reflexive power. So how did you get the idea for that? Well, when I started putting the setting together, what I did was go actually look up as many superheroes as I possibly could and say, do I have what I need to build that superhero? So if I want to go build uh, the Human Torch, do I have all everything I need in powers and edges to build that superhero? 
And the one that came up pretty quickly was Wolverine. Hmm. So Wolverine automatically regenerates. The problem with that in Savage Worlds is if he gets hit really hard and is incapacitated, he has no ability to heal. So you need something that allows you to trigger your ability based on something else happening. So he gets injured, he automatically kicks in his healing power. Uh, but you could do that in a lot of other things. Someone shoots you, you automatically throw up deflection. Uh, or if you want to go Incredible Hulk, you get really angry, you automatically get boost trait and uh, your strength goes up with a trapping of turning green. So <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> So it it seemed like that and a few other things that we added in were really needed in order to be able to model as wide a range of superpowers and superhumans as possible. So those don't count as an action since it's a reflex since it's a reflex. The player just rolls for it, but it's not an action to do it. Exactly. You obviously can't get the benefit of that concentration ability that you mentioned earlier because you're doing it spontaneously, but it doesn't add to any multi-action penalties and it can happen as is kind of obvious in the healing example, when it's not your turn. Cool. That will probably open up... Yeah, that's going to op open up the door for some very interesting character builds you couldn't do without delving into the actual superpowers companion, which hasn't yet been right. updated. To, so, so was the, um, the non-availability of the superpowers companion, was that a deciding factor for how, the way you then modeled it after the old Savage Worlds uh, Deluxe um, superpowers and went with the whole reflexive power edge? It actually had more to do with the way the super compa powers companion is structured. So to take a step back, this setting has been in the works for about a year, year and a half. And so long before Savage Worlds Adventure Edition was really on the horizon and we had an idea of what that was going to look like, I was putting the rule set together for this game. And so the decision to not to use a superpowers companion happened very early on in that process. And it was a combination of a couple of things. One was, again, that idea of having it be very low power. One was to make it easier for players to get in. Because if you don't need the superpowers companion to run the game, that's one less thing to buy, one less thing to worry about referring to, one less thing to learn. And the last one was that a lot of the superpowers companion seem to assume a modern or more than modern level of technology where you have thing where you have things like super sorcerers but you also have a lot of things where you're you have rail guns and armor suits and things like that that fit perfectly for a modern or close to modern superhero setting but don't really fit in a black powder world so look i you're looking at the two options at that time i said for what we're trying to do Core works fine. We don't really need the superpowers companion. We just need to add some more powers and some more edges to give people more options so they can really create the superhuman that they want to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can I can see that, especially with the modifiers for, for the powers that I need in the superpowers companion. It would probably be too easy to just design a uh, a superpowered Gatling gun, for, uh, for example, right. and... Uh, Nothing like that existed in the Revolutionary War, not not even remotely close. I think that was w way later than in um, with uh, North and South going at each other. Yeah, even then, I think the the Gatling gun per se really came into play later than that, more like the uh, 1880s or so, if I remember right. There are a lot of other things in the Superpowers Companion that didn't, didn't really fit. For example, uh, having a power ring or a staff or something like that when you when the setting really assumes that superpowers are inborn, mm -hmm. 
there's a lot of things that you'd have to take out of the superpowers companion. And my preference as a designer is always put more in rather than take things out. Yeah, absolutely. Makes uh, makes for a lot less less headaches. I can relate to that. Um, well, you uh, in in the jump start there are um, well there are going to be some new powers. A few of them are listed yep. um, in the jump start. And uh, the powers you had in there they are still at a base duration of three. Is that a le- uh, is that a leftover from back when the whole process started? You started putting things together. It is, and okay. the jury's out on whether we're going to change that. For the for Legion of Liberty itself, it really doesn't matter because uh, with no PowerPoint, space duration is more or less irrelevant. Hmm. Sure. But yeah, but people with, might look at the powers and be like, that's, that's actually a cool thing. I would like to incorporate that into my game, and then there'd be this discrepancy between the core powers of Suede and the, um, the powers you introduce in, in Legions of Liberty. Right. And we're leaning towards probably updating them at this point. The one catch is that some of these powers are very, very powerful and have a correspondingly high PowerPoint cost. So I might need to do a little bit of playtesting just in a a completely arbitrary setting to make sure that giving them that longer duration doesn't actually uh, render them completely absurd at the table. Uh, But I'm leaning towards probably updating them because that definitely is a carryover from Deluxe. Okay, so uh, well, new new power. What uh, what made you want to introduce new powers and not just go with the existing ones and just slap some very heavy trappings on them? There were again, there were some things that there wasn't really a solid power that would resemble it. In some cases, I pr- it, it's borderline, but a good example of one that really isn't is mimic. Uh, Mimic is a classic superhero trope where you can copy someone else's power. There really isn't a good way of modeling that in core. So the Mimic power, that one really had to be new. An example of one where I could have probably trapped it uh, is Elemental Mastery. Elemental Manipulation is a cool power, but it doesn't do a whole lot. If you want to do something like a Waterbender... You can't really do that effectively with elemental manipulation. You could layer on a whole bunch of powers and say, okay, I have telekinesis and I have entangle because I can freeze. That seemed almost too costly for someone who just said, hey, I want to be able to, you know, cause water to raise up out in the ground and smack my opponents with it or Mm -hmm. freeze them in ice. So more for simplicity of character creation than anything else, certain powers made sense to just make it one power versus three or four powers that were all trapped the same way. Yep, yep. Feeling that. Okay, so, um, well, we've touched on it a bit, but yeah, all the player characters are going to be essentially uh, America's born superpowered beings. So what's going, are they all planned to be, how do I phrase this? Is it assumed that they are going to be fighting for the militia or then uh, the regular army once that is established? Or is there a way for them to just be kind of a, a rogue group of agents um, working for the Patriots. So the core plot point campaign definitely assumes that they are on the, that they're working as part of a larger organization, which eventually becomes the Continental Army. With that said, there's absolutely nothing that keeps you from having them running around as an, as a rogue group of agents. And in fact, you don't even necessarily have to be superhuman. I took a page from Rifts and said, if you want to play someone who is not a superhuman, Start them out as a seasoned character. Give them some give them some legs up on the superhumans so they can keep up. And I think that actually works really well in this setting because the superhumans aren't 
overly powerful. So you drop a seasoned character in who maybe is an expert marksman, they're going to be able to contribute nearly as well as a superhuman in a combat situation. Similarly, you drop a socially focused seasoned character in, they're probably better than the superhumans in most social situations unless they've taken powers like oh, mind wipe and implant memory, which one of my playtesters did and had a lot of fun with. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the eternal bane of the GM mind, mind control powers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or players, too. Uh, Rifts in particular, where you have people running around in battle armor and mechs, puppet becomes a very, very useful tool in the GM toolbox. That is uh, true. With, with that said, the... So the core plot point campaign does assume you're fighting your way through the Revolutionary War, mostly because I wanted to give people the opportunity to be in some of those iconic battles, to fight at Bunker Hill, to fight at Yorktown, uh, to be present at the Continental Congress signing the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it really gives people that, that feel of being in history. But there's also an adventure generator, which is really focused on kind of black ops or covert operations in the... Revolutionary War. So if you wanted to run more of a rogue squad of superhumans running around doing their own thing, the adventure generator works really well for that. Here's here's a mission, go execute it. Hmm. Cool. So we already know uh Paul Revere is actually a uh, superhuman. So uh who who else is is in there who people might know that is not what he was in actual history? He's actually the only one. Oh, wow. Uh and I did that on purpose. Even Paul Revere was a debate, but I just could not resist the idea of him being a super speedster <laughs> and running his way out to warn everyone. But everyone else is a normal human. So Washington, Hamilton, Franklin, uh, and on the British side, Howe and uh, Cornwallis, all normal humans. The thought was superhumans are so rare and precious that it would be really unusual for one of them not to be in the gray coats already already it is a conscription situation you it's not optional the only way to get out of it is to buy your way out which is how revere is not uh, a member of the royal superhuman regiment so for any significant fraction of the founding fathers or the key f figures on the british to be superhumans just didn't seem to fit right And it also makes the players that much more important. You know, if Washington is striding along the battlefield 40 feet tall, blasting people with lightning bolts, it's kind of less impressive for the players to be doing their own thing on the battlefield. But if he's just an ordinary guy who happens to be really good at tactics and command, you start to become really pivotal to what's happening on the battlefield. Yeah, especially if you're powerful enough to actually shift the tide of a battle and you are the people that Washington is relying on to actually go out and do that. So exactly. Very, very, exactly. very good way of uh, framing and shifting focus away from from important historical figures. Yeah, I like I like that a lot. So they can just uh, play out that that uh, that inner child of them that would be going up to <laughs> Washington and be like, uh, "It's really you." And the next in the next moment, they they'd be like charging into battle for exactly him. Yep. Or alternatively, we we had some point we had one player at the table who was playing a Native American character and really wasn't his biggest fan. Yep. <laughs> uh, her, her perspective was, okay, I'm not a big fan of these colonists. The British are worse. So I'm going to help them deal with the British and 
at the end of the campaign, she basically said, "Okay, now I'm going to go found the insurgency that's going to throw the West, the rest of these guys out as well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I can see a lot of uh, interesting turns developing that way. Especially once you're going to write up the follow up book from uh, the secession wars. <clears throat> did, did I say that out loud? <laughs> uh, actually, we're, we were thinking more uh, the Napoleonic Wars would be fun because so, several people have said, hey, can I play a gray coat? And Well, you can, but uh, we could make it a lot more fun by actually putting them in the spotlight by having them fighting through the peninsula against the French superhuman forces, most of whom would be a lot more experienced because they were coming in from Canada back when it was still owned by the French. Hmm. Hmm. So, um, well, um, just another example off the top of your head of a uh, very, very big historical moment that's going to be changed in your in your plot point campaign, some some teasers, so to speak. So uh, a really iconic image from the revolution is Washington crossing the Delaware. And that is a moment that happens in the game. And it's a different situation if that battle goes the wrong way. So. The way that can play out in the plot point campaign is if that battle goes badly, Washington could actually be captured by the British, in which case the next thing that the heroes are going to be tasked with is go rescue Washington. Mm. So obviously completely different than anything that happened in history, but really provides a, a fun opportunity for the characters to go behind enemy lines in kind of commando mode. And uh, do a prison break off, in this case, a, uh, a prison ship off the coast of uh, New York City. I played that one out at a convention recently, uh, and it was a complete chaotic blast. Uh, <laughs> we had we had uh, power people's powers, uh, our plans getting completely crosswired. We had a shape shifting character who uh, had rolled a critical failure and got stuck as a human inside a jail cell that she had infiltrated as a mouse. Uh, <laughs> it was just absolute chaos and craziness but everyone around the table had an had a blast with it wow that's great yeah hopefully if that ever happens you have uh one or two people with uh water superpowers because damn you're going to need it (laughs) we actually did have uh, a couple people who had the state shift power this is another new power in the setting that allows you to change from uh your normal human body into stone or water or vapor or something like that so uh, being able to change into water was very, very handy for that one in terms of sneaking up on the ship because you were just part of the ocean. Hmm. Yep, that is one heck of a bonus to your stealth roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The uh, the gentleman with the disguise power, on the other hand, simply uh, converted himself into a colonel of marines and boarded the uh, ship in the complete open, demanding that they bring Washington to him, Washington to him at once. Mm. And uh, thanks to a very high persuasion role, that worked that worked out very nicely for him. <laughs> so th- that's interesting. A single a single colonel just showing up out of nowhere, and then everybody being like, "Okay, what do we do?" Well, he wasn't the only one. They, a couple of the other party actually went in disguised as redcoats as well. Ah, okay. And we got to we got to roll in another fun historical figure here, one of the less known ones, a guy by the name of Hercules Mulligan, which will be familiar to people who like the musical Hamilton, but probably not otherwise. Uh, Mulligan was a uh, patriot agent in New York City who ran a haberdasher that catered to the British officer corps. So he was able to collect a ton of interesting information and then funnel it to Washington via Washington's 
Culper uh, Ring, which was uh, the infamous spy ring that he ran for most of the war. Uh, the Culper Ring also included at least one, probably more than one woman, which is another way to bring women back into the picture in the revolution. Uh, notably, the Agent 355, who was uh, never identified historically. There are some good guesses as to who she was, but mm. she was a really key element of that ring in terms of collecting and uh, extracting information to feed to Washington over the course of the revolution. Well, are there going to be links to all the Wikipedia things I'm going to have to read up to actually understand <laughs> what's going to happen in that campaign? We are planning to have both uh, pretty extensive uh, bibliography and also um, have historical notes scattered through it talking about things like this is what really happened versus what's actually happening and why did we choose this particular path for the alternate history if things went differently. Hmm. Uh, case in point, the invasion of Canada plotline happens if the Battle of Bunker Hill is won uh, rather than lost as it was historically. That would force the British to evacuate sooner, which would give the Americans an opportunity to move on Canada sooner than they were able to historically because it freed up their forces from the siege of Boston. So if they win the battle, then Canada becomes in play sooner. If they lose the battle, that's what happened historically. And so things proceed down more of the, the, the standard historical path. Hmm. Nice. So um, is, is there a way for them to completely lose in, in the plot point campaign? Uh, there is not, although I wouldn't uh, object if a GM decided to play it out that way. And that's really because once you get France in play and the war extends into Europe, Mm. and that was probably inevitable given the relations between France and Britain at the time, then the conclusion of the war was pretty much foregone at that point. It was going, the Americans were going to win. Um, if they were going to lose, it would have happened a lot sooner in the war. And in which case you'd have a very short campaign, which didn't seem like a whole <laughs> lot of fun. That I can absolutely understand. Yeah. Okay. So I think that just covers about, Everything I I was able to to <laughs> dig up. I'm I'm sure people with a more profound knowledge of uh, the Continental War would have a ton of more questions to <laughs> ask. But uh, that is not my forte of history. Sadly, I I think uh, when I when I finally get that book, I'm going to be spending a lot of time on on Wikipedia, and that's actually a very nice thing about um about Legions of Liberty. So because I can just go on wikipedia i can get, uh, just read through the whole course of the war and every yep. all, all things that happened in big places and in small places and mine that for ideas and then as you said there's an adventure generator and gen use that feed in some real things that happen and bam i have more than enough to to fill out the void between the uh between the plot points absolutely and then uh if you want to get a head start at that we did blog the entire uh, playtest campaign at the happymonsterpress.com blog site. And I did include a lot of the Wikipedia links. So if you're, when I'm talking about someone like General Ho, you can jump immediately to him. And uh, in, in honor of the uh, Kickstarter, we actually collected all of the blog posts into a single blog post. So you can just grab each link and read your way through the campaign and see how, uh, when the giant crab attack happened and what <laughs> What has got to be one of the best characters that any player has ever come up with at my table, Jacoby Barnes, the Boston Lobster Man, and his uh, 
his adventures, shifting into armor form with his lobster carapace and wielding his mighty lobster claws in melee combat. <laughs> <laughs> yep, can't wait to read up on that. So yeah, <laughs> thank you for collecting that. That's going to be interesting. So, well, um, everything Scott uh, talked about, you're going to find links to that in the description below this video. There's going to be links to the Kickstarter or in case the campaign is already ended, there are going to be links to the, um, I assume, uh, drive-through RPG site where you can buy the finished product. I'm going to include links to the Happy Monster Press uh, blog. And yeah, uh, Scott, anything else you want to pluck at this point? Any shout outs? Uh, so I actually would like to give a shout out to the entire Savage Worlds Aces community, the licensed publishers. They are a fantastic community. They've been a huge help to somebody coming in relatively new to the process. Got some great feedback on the Kickstarter page that was really helpful. And uh, so far, the Kickstarter is going extremely well. So thank you for that feedback. I am quite sure it helped. <laughs> that's going to be making a lot of people happy yeah the kickstarter is going amazingly well it's uh uh at this point you're almost funded uh as that's of right. this moment when we're recording this video you are just a bitch uh, about 200 dollars short of being funded and there are 20 more days in this campaign so uh there's there's going to be a lot of lovely art and i well i already know what your artist of choice is capable of from children of the apocalypse so very much looking forward to seeing the finished product there so uh yeah scott thank you uh for once again joining me it's been a pleasure just like last time and i'm sure next time will be just as equal all right great to great to be here and uh looking forward to the next round <laughs> and thank every one of you for watching whenever that may be you know where to find me you know where to find all the stuff and so then when you click the links you will know where to find scott and until then, I'm going to see you in the next one. And until then, stay savage. Bye-bye. Bye. You can follow Happy Monster Press on Facebook as Happy Monster Press, at our website, happymonsterpress.com, Twitter as Happy Monster PRS, or follow the podcast on YouTube, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play Music. The Happy Monster Cast is part of the Savage Worlds Media Network. This game references the Savage Worlds game system available from Pinnacle Entertainment Group at www.teginc.com. It is unofficial media content permitted under the Media Network Content Agreement. This content is not managed, approved, or endorsed by Pinnacle Entertainment Group. Certain portions of the materials used are the intellectual property of Pinnacle and all rights are reserved. Savage Worlds, all related settings and unique characters, locations, and characters, logos, and trademarks are copyrights of Pinnacle Entertainment Group. All other content is the intellectual property of Heavy Monster Press. Background music is Ice Cold by Jason Shaw. Oh, <laughs>